You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Jolly Jetlin Edition. <laughs> Hello, Governor. I don't know if that's how Charlie Chaplin talked. I'm not really sure. I don't think he did. I think he. I think maybe he talked about like that when he was but a lad. Ah. But because he grew up in South London. I think he talked like Robert Downey Jr. in that not very good Chaplin biopic. I've never seen that not very good Chaplin biopic. It's. I really dislike it. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, Downey Jr. is great. But Richard Attenborough, not maybe the. Well, maybe a little bit of a hack. I per- don't know. Perhaps someone like Chaplin himself. He likes to say, what would the word be? Sanct- not sanctify, but he likes to turn his subject into a saint and make it melodramatic and syrupy sweet. And it meant that you felt like his life story was not very well told and that the actual Chaplin was done a disservice to. No, yeah, we're going to talk about the actual Chaplin here in a minute. The actual Chaplin deserves probably a fairly hard edged take and maybe he'd get one today with the post me too era and stuff like that mm-hmm. he would be considered a quote-unquote problematic figure but and he is he's the most problematic maybe of those guys from that era although hollywood what can you say yeah lots of stuff for lots of doing stuff. a podcast so we'll say some of it yeah richard attenborough he did that gandhi movie which i've never seen i assume it is Probably full of bathos and sanctifying its character. And uh, what's, what's, what's the word for that? My goodness, this is not that hard a word. Uh, I can't think of it. A word for when what? A word for when someone puts a halo. Oh, yes. Um, what is the word for that? Oh. Sorry, listener. Hagiography. Uh, a hagiography, but that's not what you want. Yeah. That's... I bet that you, dear listener, can pull it to mind and you're annoyed that we can't. Yes, you're probably screaming at your iPhone right now. <laughs> <laughs> Probably so. Oh, well. Yeah, anyway, it will do that. I bet Attenborough does that thing. He also did Shadowlands with Hopkins, right? Yeah, which is okay. It's okay. It's It definitely, what did you expect, I guess? But it definitely shaves some edges off of C.S. Lewis. It's sentimental. Yeah. And I don't, I've never seen the original play or the, there's a version that is, that you can watch that was filmed with that guy. The guy from Hunt for Red Joss October. Ackland. Yes, I've seen Joss that, Ackland. and it's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. But I saw it when I was a kid. So I'd, I'd go back to that before I'd go back to the Anthony Hopkins, just out of curiosity. Yeah, I'd be curious to see that. I know he has diplomatic immunity. He does. He does have diplomatic immunity. <laughs> well, actually, it got revoked. It got revoked. It's just been revoked. <laughs> it's just been revoked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a movie that you probably should not see. <laughs> no. Weapon 2. Not no. an appropriate movie. No. Pretty gross. It's a, it is inappropriate, but it does have a fun final death. It really the does. Villain. The villain is, in fact, a diplomat. And he, at the end, he <laughs> semi-murders Mel Gibson and then says, Diplomatic immunity. And then... Danny Glover shoots him probably in the head and said, has just been revoked. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Well, we didn't come here to talk about Joss Ackland. No, we didn't. We didn't. I dare say there'll be lots of one-liners in this podcast, but not the kind that come right before or after murdering a villain, unless that's what we're going to do to Charlie Chaplin. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to give Charlie Chaplin a fair trial. There's no murder. It's going to happen. Yes. Fair trial. Then we're going to kick him out of the United States for 20 years, (laughs) which is what happened. Uh, Yeah, we're talking about modern times. Why are we talking about modern times? I I don't know. Because we did those other two. 
we did a Keaton and a Lloyd, and we needed to do a Chaplin, and we talked about it some. And yeah, Jake's, Jake's on sabbatical, and so we're trying to think of things that maybe would be not things that I actually think Jake probably would have enjoyed this movie, and maybe even mm-hmm. would have helped us enjoy it in some weird ways. But like I was clocking certain things, where I was like, I bet Jake would laugh at that. Not in like a, <laughs> I bet Jake would laugh at that, but just in. You know, me and Ben are chuckling, but Jake might be guffawing. And then there were other places where Ben and I, I don't know if we ever reached guffaw level, but there were places where we were laughing. And I was like, I wonder if Jake would be chuckling. Not that me and Ben are always perfectly synced up when Jake's, that's not the dynamic I'm describing. I'm just saying I observed one we or two things. We enjoy somewhat different things. Yes, all three movies. of us. We're different people. Yeah. But I observed moments where I thought it might have gone that way. Or maybe Jake would have been there in stony silence or... Who knows? We can only speculate. He yep. wasn't there. Speculation. Speculation. At Modern Times, yes, is the film we are talking about. If you don't know, it is a kind of semi-silent movie in that it came out actually after the advent of sound in 1936. And Chaplin was like, no way, fool. I ain't going to do sound movies. I'm a master pantomimist and acrobat and stuff like that. And it would only ruin my little tramp character to do a sound film and yet in this in city lights and modern times he he does what is essentially a movie with designed sound but without dialogue so it is a sound movie in that it has a soundtrack that's intentional it's not like somebody would have been playing an old-timey piano while the movie ran it's got a score that Chaplin wrote himself it's got a lot of sound effects most of the gags are punctuated by sound and there's even a bizarro Mm -hmm. scene with gastric distress it's, it's all <laughs> yeah, you, hilarious sound-based comedy it was a i think it's fair to say it was a bold experiment that gastric distress it was like how can i use sound to make a different kind of joke right so it's like he you could tell he was trying to figure out the pacing and the rhythm of what would be funny yes i respected that i respected it i don't know that i laughed all no that no i didn't it. think it was it wasn't funny but it, it was good job there's also another, there's a famous scene at the end of this movie where Chaplin sings a nonsense in a fake other language song that's also an experiment with sound. And I would say that one I also didn't really laugh at, but it's much more successful in terms of mm-hmm. you're just like, ah, this guy's really talented and he's mm-hmm. doing a talented thing. And I understand why yep. Chaplin is Chaplin. Why is Chaplin Chaplin, though? Maybe we should talk about it real quick in a segment I call Context. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. You may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. Although it strikes me maybe it would be good to get some baggage before we do that. It doesn't matter. It's in the past. (laughs) Yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past can't hurt. I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. Ben, what is your baggage with silent comedy, with Charlie Chaplin, with silent film in general? Let's see, Nathan. I didn't grow up watching any of it. I'm struggling to remember even a single silent movie that I saw. You know what? The closest thing would be a bunch of silent cartoons with music. Then some of those are famous. There's the famous one where the mice have an orchestra, and there's a cat who's playing jazz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it all feels very <laughs> racially tinged when I was a kid. I didn't, I didn't pick up on any of this, but now I feel pretty bad about it, actually. <laughs> so this poor jazz playing cat is being tormented by the incredibly loud sim- mouse symphony. And he keeps trying to stop them, and finally they end up, <laughs> they end up like shooting him with like 
tacks and rocks <laughs> off a dock <laughs> to the tune of William Tell's Overture. <laughs> and it was a great cartoon. <laughs> it feels very, very racist Is now, that though. a early Fleischer or Disney or Man, a Looney Tunes or something Disney. else? It's not Looney Tunes. Might- it might be Flesher, whatever. And it sounds like it could actually be an early Silly Symphony before the Looney Tunes. I'm pretty sure it's kind of famous, though. We had a cassette, a VHS of these cartoons, and that was one of them. Yeah. That I remember. So I remember, like, in that sense, liking liking silent film. I think it's fair to say maybe there was a little bit of sound effects or talking or something. Maybe it wasn't. I think that's probably true. I think for a lot of people, cartoons, a lot of kids from our generation, Mm -hmm. at least, I don't know about the current generation, cartoons are the link to, like, when you finally do watch a Chaplin or Keaton or something like that, you're like, oh, the rhythms of the way Mm -hmm. that this comedy works. That's right. All these weird substitution gags where somebody thinks they're going to pick up a toothbrush, but they actually pick up a rock, you know. Right. They all found their way into Looney Tunes and Disney shorts and Fleischer and stuff like that. And that's kind of how we know them. That's And that makes sense to me. So. The language of silent films felt familiar when I went back to them. Yeah. Where when I first got to them much later in life. So I think I first saw a silent movie. I'm struggling here. Maybe it was even a Keaton. I think I got exposed to a Keaton movie, The General, in film class. And I was like, oh, this guy's awesome. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this was going to be this much fun or this cool or that I would just like it even as filmmaker. Like watching Keaton work, use the camera. It's fun. Yeah. I went back and found a couple other Keatons, didn't dip into Chaplin, didn't dip into Lloyd. I don't quite know why. I didn't. I was ignorant of Lloyd mm-hmm. entirely. And then Chaplin, for whatever reason, I just thought, I don't look, feel very interested in this. So that's all I know. I knew what he looked like. I mm-hmm. knew the iconography of the little tramp. Right. And somehow or other, I did happen to see that biopic Chaplin, which is not a movie I think that will make you at all want to watch a Chaplin movie. It seems like a bit of a failure. <laughs> I feel like it was a failure. It's kind of, it just felt like a self-indulgent, maudlin kind of movie. I remember Ebert's review for that movie, which I've read all of Ebert's reviews so many times, even for movies I haven't seen, because I just love to read Ebert back in the mm-hmm. day. But he said something along the lines of, this movie fails because it doesn't, it's about Chaplin's love life, it's about different yeah. things, but it doesn't actually capture what make made him a great performer or what made him a great filmmaker like mm-hmm. it, it's it's very strange to make a movie that asks no questions and provides no answers about the process of an artist yeah that is weird and it is true so i, I think that's it so yeah. now i'm but now i'm a fan of silent movies i'm trying to think of what i've seen outside of the three comedians we've just discussed and I, i'm almost sure there's been something but i don't know what yeah i'm trying to think what have we watched on this podcast have we only done, we did Safety Last, which is mm-hmm. a wonderful Harold Lloyd movie. It's awesome. And Steamboat Bill Jr. Steamboat Bill Jr., which <clears throat> is probably my favorite Keaton film. It's just great. And yeah, you can listen to us talk about that. Yep. And you have seen City Lights, right? Did you say that? Yes, I did see City Lights at some point. Maybe that one I did check out myself and watch. That's quite possible. Which, if people don't know, that's kind of Chaplin's the most famous film, I guess. It's... Huh. It's famous for its combining of humor and sentiment, which luckily mm-hmm. the movie that we watched, while it has plenty of sentiment, and we'll talk about whether it's effective or not, it down, downplays it compared to City Lights, which is mm-hmm. about like a blind girl and the tramp helps the blind girl. and Yeah, and then that's right. There's an alcoholic millionaire who's kind of the friend of the tramp. And anyway. Yeah, it's very sentimental. I don't know. One thing that's 
we'll talk about, I'm sure, is Chaplin can be sentimental and mawkish. She can also kind of feel self-pitying in a way that both Keaton and Lloyd don't stumble mm-hmm. into, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, oh, I should get my baggage. Yeah. Um, I have seen most of Charlie Chaplin's oeuvre, but not for probably about 20 years. When I was getting into film, I just had a Chaplin phase and I watched all his major films. And I remembered Modern Times. The reason, one of the reasons I wanted to do Modern Times is because I remembered it as being, this is actually his last Little Tramp movie. There's that The Great Dictator, which is a sound film. People are probably familiar with it. You probably see the imagery because Chaplin mm-hmm. intentionally leans into and makes a joke out of the fact that his pers- his tramp persona looks exactly like Adolf Hitler. Mm-hmm. And so the tramp-like character gets mistaken and substituted kind of a man in the iron mask style thing for this dictator called Adenoid Heichler or something like that. <laughs> and it's not a very good movie actually, but okay. I, guess, I suppose it was brave at the time. You know, some, it, some people seem to like it a lot. Or they yeah. like that speech that he gives at the end. Well, I mean, to me, it's of. like, it is cool that Chaplin stood against fascism and stuff in his time, but I don't know that it really speaks to me today. It's like, oh, Hitler was bad. Okay, thank you, Charlie. That's a good insight. It's not his fault, but I don't know that it really has crossed, crossed the ocean of time all that well. Plus, it's half sort of serious and... Modern Times is already verging on Chaplin taking himself a little too seriously and having too much time for my taste in between the gag sequences, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But yeah, the, the Chaplin movie that I actually like the best is called The Circus, which is one that Chaplin didn't even mention in his autobiography. I don't think he thought very much of it, huh. but it's just a gag a minute sort of fun. The little tramp gets ends up in a circus and there's some big tough guy that's chasing him around. And I think there's still... He falls in love with the ballerina and she rejects mm-hmm. him for someone else and he goes offset. There's still that strain of sentiment. Right. But <clears throat> it's much more just um, everything that I like about Charlie Chaplin, who's an interesting guy and very interesting to compare with Keaton and Lloyd. But I guess we'll save that for a second. I'll give some brief context now in a. Oh, and I like silent film and I've seen. Nobody's seen that much silent film unless you're a silent film scholar, but I suppose I've seen the benchmarks, the kinds of things that show up on AFI lists and stuff yeah. like that. Your Metropolis, <clears throat> your, I guess that wouldn't show up on the AFI list because it's not American, but you know what I'm saying? Yep. I've seen Metropolis and Nosferatu and Phantom of the Opera. and uh, I have seen Phantom of the Opera, the old The Lon silent. Chaney one with the, the big rictus-like mouth yeah. kind of famous makeup. Yeah, and some of those movies are cool. I've had the I had the opportunity to see Metropolis with a live organ score. That was pretty awesome. Huh. It really worked well on a big screen with someone playing a thundering live accompaniment. And I encourage you to see these films if they come to your town or some if you have an opportunity to see any great silent horror movie like Nosferatu or something like that or especially the comedies. I think that they will play like gangbusters with an audience. Like me and Ben were the audience for modern times and we chuckled a decent amount, but I can still, I think I have enough of a comedy sense to know how that movie would play with an with a sympathetic audience. And I think it would still actually play pretty well. And certainly Lloyd and Keaton would. So if you have an opportunity to see any of these movies, then I encourage you to do it because it's always better to see a movie with a crowd. But that brings us hmm. to the context. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. You may think you know what you're dealing with. 
but believe me, you don't. Charles Spencer Chaplin Jr., born 1889 in South London to Hannah Chaplin and Charles Chaplin Sr. Poverty, family struggles. His parents were both music hall performers with a bad marriage, which I feel like we've come across this before, but I can't remember where. Cary Grant, to some extent, <clears throat> comes from this kind of background. Do we not? <laughs> haven't we talked about... No, I guess we've just talked about Buster Keaton's background before as a stage performer, as a kid. Yeah. Kind that's of, right. That's right. Kind of so same no, thing. I, he was in the American vaudeville scene getting thrown uh, around by his dad and mom. That's right. Okay. Chaplin was sent to Lambeth Workhouse at age seven and later to Norwood Schools for Destitute Children, which is, I think, important context for the movie we're about to talk about because. Like Charles Dickens, as much as you can kind of be tempted to be a little bit annoyed by some of his social commentary, it is heartfelt, and he did experience the kind of institutional, mechanized horrors of the Victorian era turning into the modern industrial area. So it is something that he felt and suffered under in a way that's not just the cliches that we're used to about a little orphan boy working in a a mill or something, you know, a Dick- mm-hmm. Dickensian kind of thing. Charles Chaplin actually did live a Dickensian early life. Mm-hmm. His mother ended up in a mental asylum in 1898. It's also just worth noting, 1889, when he was born, that's about five years, seven years before the advent of the motion picture. So much like Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin was born at the same time as cinema and as to the manner born kind of thing. Chaplin and his brother Sidney briefly stayed with their alcoholic father, who was deemed unfit by child welfare services. Again, useful to know if you're going to watch this movie with us. Chaplin's father passed away when he was 11, and his mother was kind of in and out of mental institutions, and Chaplin ended up caring for her, basically, until his her death in 1928. So Chaplin got a little bit of school. He'd be in and out of schools for poor kids, but he began performing at on stage. He His first amateur appearance was at age five, and by nine, he was really locking in. He joined the eight Lancashire lads clog dancing troupe and began touring music halls from 1899 to 1900 and basically gave up on education at 13 to become an actor. At 14, he registered with a theatrical agency and got his first role in Jim, A Romance of Cocaine. And that that show failed for some reason. Jim, (sighs) A Romance of Cocaine has not, uh, didn't even stand the test of its own time. (laughs) Strange. Chaplin, though, was acclaimed for his comic performance and ended up being like in a Sherlock Holmes play, doing these different plays in the West End of London and just kind of doing the music hall scene there. He and his brother created a comedy sketch called Repairs and joined Casey's Circus, where he really became a circus star, honed a lot of his acrobatic skills, a lot of his pantomime skills, which is the one thing that you cannot, whether you think he's funny, whether you like his movies, he is a master of pantomime and probably arguably the best of the three when it comes to that, although Keaton, mm-hmm. Keaton is doing something different and doing it perhaps more brilliantly and more likably, in my opinion. But mm-hmm. but, yeah, but just in terms of, I need to show you that I'm dizzy or I need to show you that I'm whatever. 
Yeah. I need to convey that I'm in love or that I'm angry or that like Pap- Chaplin's just yeah. amazing mm-hmm. at that kind of thing. So he and his brother Sidney joined a comedy company and became, were actually part of the section of the company that toured North America where Chaplin earned acclaim for his role as the inebriate swell. Yes, you heard that right, Ben? The inebriate swell. This was in the days of love it. alcoholism being a very funny topic. Hilarious. When you watch these old movies, they do make it pretty funny. The stumble routines. I don't know. Remember in Safety Last, there's the drunk guy at the bottom of the building that random nets and things keep getting dropped on him. And he's just like <laughs> staggering around. <laughs> I do remember that. It's good stuff. It was funny. It's good stuff. In 1913, Chaplin was invited to join the New York Motion Picture Company to replace a departing star at Keystone Studios. People may know the Keystone Cops. If you've ever seen the old cliche, you probably actually haven't seen actual Keystone comedies, but what you've seen is people from mid-century Hollywood recreating Keystone. So it's like all the cops with the big sort of pith helmet things, the big black helmets and they all go tumbling yep, and chase yep, yep. after the hapless hero with their baton <laughs> that's keystone really early hollywood wasn't a thing in 1900 by 1910 california has become the center of a motion picture industry and keystone is one of the companies chaplin signs a 150 per week contract in 1913 His film acting debut, Making a Living, received mixed reviews, but his second appearance introduced the iconic Tramp character in Kid Auto Races at Venice, that classic film that we all grow up with. Kid Auto Races at Venice. Kid Auto Races at Venice. Chaplin kind of invented the character from the outside in. He found the costume and, but well, you could just watch the Robert Downey Jr. movie and you'll find out all about this kind of stuff. But he began to hone his style. Uh, Keystone had a house style. Tumbling mm-hmm. cops, chase people, frantic sort of, mm-hmm. you know, gags and jumps and stuff that we think of as having inspired Jackie Chan or something like that. But so, so Chaplin had to fit that house style, but he began to really hone his style, which was to slow everything down. I noticed in this movie a lot of times when I laughed, it was when you already saw that something was about to happen. You'd be like, oh yeah, I can see the brick that's uh-huh. on that thing. He's going to launch that at the cop. And it was almost... <laughs> funnier to anticipate uh-huh. it yeah that's kind of chaplin as opposed to just bam 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 it's more about our old friend's setups and payoffs he asked for a higher salary when his contract was supposed to be renewed and keystone was like no so he joined essany film manufacturing company with a lucrative offer of twelve thousand or no why always say this wrong one thousand two hundred and fifty dollars per week and a ten thousand dollar signing bonus assembled a stock company got a leading lady, began to really control his films, the production timeline, and refine his persona. And the tramp becomes this sort of gentle and almost romantic figure, is what you always read. Although I, as I'm sure we'll talk about, I always, there's always a menace or passive aggressive quality or something to the tramp. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, well, we'll, we'll have, yeah, plenty of we, time will to talk about we will it. talk about it. I guess we should talk for a moment about who and what the little tramp is sure because we keep saying little tramp but what is the little tramp well if people don't know that's what you think of when you think of charlie chaplin you think of a character that he portrayed who was popularly called 
the little tramp. Charlie Chaplin himself, a very handsome fella without a Hitler mustache. and Did not tramp around. He did not tramp around. He did not have the baggy pants and the bowler hat and all that stuff in real life. But he invented this character. And I guess the way it works is, or the way it worked was he was at Keystone and the legendary producer at Keystone, Mark Sennett, sent him off to, like, they, they were making a movie and it needed additional gags. And Chaplin had already played non-trampish characters for Senate. But the Senate was like, go off. The legend, at least, the story that Chaplin told in his autobiography, which is one of the most not trustworthy autobiographies <laughs> of all time. He was definitely a print the legend kind of a guy. But the story is that Senate's like, go off and dress in some funny clothes and come back. This movie needs more gags. It needs a funny character. So dress funny and come back. And so Chaplin goes off and basically goes to the wardrobe room and assembles a wardrobe, finds a tailcoat and a bowler hat, both of which were too small and trousers that were too baggy and kind of shoes that were too big. And then he added a little grease paint mustache and got a bamboo cane. And according to Chaplin's version of events, as soon as he put on the clothes, he he had no conception of the character before he put the clothes on, but then he put on the clothes and he became the little tramp. The myth, the, the man, the legend. The, the myth, the man, the legend, who Chaplin described as, quote, a tramp, a gentleman, a poet, a dreamer, a lonely fellow, always hopeful of romance and adventure, unquote. Which is, if you, want, <laughs> if you like reading phrases like that, then you owe yourself the treat of reading Charlie <laughs> Chaplin's autobiography. Because oh, that's how he likes to talk about himself. So Charlie Chaplin's character, the dude with the mustache, is called the Little Tramp, and that is what obviously we think of when we think of Charlie Chaplin. It is the iconic character that he played. Uh, the Little Tramp, something of a misnomer because he doesn't always play a tramp, like a, a hobo, a vagrant type character. He will often be a hobo and a vagrant, but mm -hmm. even in the movie that we watched today, he starts out as an employed factory worker and he he becomes a vagrant, but that's right. He, he's not essentially a vagrant when the film starts. And the tramp would often be a waiter, a store clerk, a firefighter, a soldier, whatever the individual short film or longer film required. I think if you wanted to def define what he was essentially more accurately, you could say he was an outsider. He was always somehow a misfit someone that was outside of the situation and mm -hmm. i think he's a little bit more of i don't know whether this is the right phrase but i remember in some stupid high school literature class somebody the teacher using the phrase airy sprite i don't know that phrase yeah i, I don't actually remember what the phrase means and airy i didn't bother sprite. to look it up but i'm gonna think i'm thinking maybe let's see airy sprite meaning yeah Exactly. Okay, I'm using it correctly. A small or elusive supernatural being, an elf or a pixie, an elf-like person is an All airy right. sprite. I think I think the tramp is best understood as something of an airy sprite or as something of a magical person. He vacillates between being a magical outsider that can do anything and that exists to puncture societal norms and stuff. And then being a more realistic, down-to-earth character who's 
put upon and oppressed in the way that he more is in mm-hmm. this movie, but he can step outside of his situation in a way that wouldn't be dissimilar to us, like Bugs Bunny or Mickey right. Mouse or one of these characters that kind of exists outside of the morals and mores of his time and can comment on them a little bit. To understand what I'm talking about, you can compare him to Buster Keaton or to Harold Lloyd. Buster Keaton, in his own way, is kind of a magical yeah. creature. He's not quite of this earth, but he's much more rooted in the reality of this is a dude with a job, with a goal, mm-hmm. with a understandable mm-hmm. sort of social situation mm-hmm. in any given story. And then, obviously, Harold Lloyd, totally just an everyman kind of character who's right. doing the same kinds of things that we as an audience might do. But Chaplin is a little bit more magical. He just, he'll wander into different situations and wander out of different situations. He can be anything that he needs to be for the story. He is a hero character, as you can see in this movie. He's also a deflator and deflector and popper of pomposity. He can be unexpectedly savage as we'll talk about you know Mm -hmm. he's he's not in that elf-like mischievous quality he kind of exists to tear down bad social structures and bad people and he's got a little bit of a comedic edge which i'm sure we'll talk about later but as we'll also talk about more and more chaplin became more sentimental in his conception of his own character as he went. And so by the time we get to modern times, the character is a much more integrated personality with a lot of wistfulness, with a lot of sentiment attached to him. Mm -hmm. But I especially recommend that people watch some of the classic early shorts because he just exists to be a comic sprite that causes destruction and it's fun. It's yeah. And because you're not asked to take the character as seriously, you maybe don't have some of the qualms that you might have that maybe we'll talk about later in this episode Hmm. so yeah that's the little tramp that's the character audiences loved him everywhere and people debate where exactly he came from was he just a vaudeville archetype of the time or did he come from chaplin's dickensian childhood or what but the point is he's an original character one other thing i'll say is that tramps and hobos were not overly romanticized in the period they would be a little bit as we moved into the 30s with the depression and stuff like that but most of these shorts were done in the teens and the 20s and usually if you're going to watch a movie a more serious movie with a tramp or a vagrant or a hobo they would be a very bad person a threat someone that's going to Mm -hmm. sexually menace the heroine or try and carry her off or something like that it was a little bit. And in the 20s was a time of wealth in America. And oftentimes the heroes were very upper class kinds of people in a way that we're not used to in our media now. We usually don't, unless it's Tony Stark, we're not usually celebrating the upper crust of society. But in the 1920s, of course, you could just have a hero be a rich lad that just wants to make good at Harvard or something. Mm-hmm. It would be like a standard kind of story. Sure. And so... You could have moneyed heroes and money heroines, and then they could actually be menaced by the lower class. So Chaplin is inverting that whole mm-hmm. that whole schema in a way that people found very relatable and fun at the time. Like, hey, what if the working class guy was actually able to walk into this situation and just pop all the balloons of 
pomposity and all that kind of stuff. So hmm. that's a little tramp. Cool. Anyway, in 1915, his career is really taking off. There's Chaplin merchandise, cartoons, songs. He becomes the first international star in the film industry. It's important to understand that silent film was an international medium because all you had to do was swap out the title cards. And so French people watch a Chaplin film and they just assume he's talking in their language. They don't, there's no sort of barrier of dubbing or anything like that. So the tramp was this internationally known and internationally beloved character. Chaplin moves from S. So if you watch Chaplin's Keystone comedies, they're pretty primitive. His S and E comedies are pretty good. And then his mutual comedies still, these are still short films are when he was one, he was the world's, one of the world's highest paid individuals, and he was 26 years old. You have these elaborate two-reelers like The Floor Walker, The Fireman, and The Vagabond, which I would encourage our listeners to seek out. Have you seen these? Yeah, yeah. And they're genius, and they're fun, and in many ways they're more fun, actually, than Chaplin's long-form work because they're less sentimental and more mm-hmm. just about, he's got to sweep the floor. Will he do it? There are extended sequences in this movie that are just that. Right. But then there's the in-between stuff. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Chaplin received the first of his criticisms, his public criticisms, for not participating in World War One. But put a bookmark in that because Chaplin's going to have a complicated relationship with his new home, the United States, in terms of politics and all that sort of stuff. Then Chaplin goes to First National, and he's paid $1 million, which is an insane sum of money at the time, to complete eight films he builds his own studio he begins he like he has all the resources if you've heard like us talk about buster keaton the tragedy of buster keaton is that he was always fighting against the system and he never he got to make a few masterpieces like the general and steamboat bill jr but he mm-hmm. he then kind of lost it and they didn't trust it but chaplin always was working once he hit his stride he was working with all the money and all the resources and doing mm-hmm. exactly what he wanted to do and one of the things he wanted to do was criticize war with a film called Shoulder Arms that depicts the tramp in wartime situations. And it's a good movie. It's just kind of the beginning of Chaplin having this social conscience, but expressing it through slapstick comedy. Chaplin helped found, form, he still wanted more money and more control, so he formed United Artists. If you've ever seen the moniker United Artists for a film company, that oh, yeah. was... Because a bunch of artists united. It was Mary Pickford, who was a famous starlet of the time. Douglas Fairbanks, the great stunt performer and original Robin Hood player and all that stuff. D.W. Griffith, director of Intolerance and Birth of a Nation. And Chaplin were like, we all want to just control our own films. So let's get together and let's make our own studio and just do whatever we want. It's also around this time that Chaplin's sex life begins to hit the papers, and that is something that you have to be aware of with Chaplin, and it does throw a little bit of a pall over even a movie like this one where his co-star is so much obviously younger than him, and even in the story, written as younger than him. She's like an underage waif, someone that should be in juvenile detention, is a plot point in the movie, and yet she's essentially his wife figure by the end. And that was very much to Chaplin's taste because in the early 1920s, there was a girl named Mildred Harris, 16-year-old, who Chaplin very quickly married because she said that she was pregnant. Turned out that she actually was not pregnant. That was just her ploy to get him to seal the deal, as it were. 
And that divorce very quickly dissolved. An interesting thing to note is how overwhelmingly popular Chaplin was that these things, while they hurt him a little bit, didn't destroy him. It would have been very, there are other people's careers from the time where those kinds of scandals, when they got out, just people had enough moral turpitude or whatever you want to say that it did actually destroy people. So how old would he have been then? Let's see. Doing some calculations here. He would have been 29 and she would have been 16. Yeah. So not the worst part of Chaplin's story, but we're getting to that. Um, So that marriage is dead by 1920. I think they actually did end up having a child together after she tricked him, but the child didn't live. The child was malformed, whatever you say. Chaplin makes The Kid in 1921, his first famous full-length feature, and a movie that's all about poverty and children and parents being separated. And it's, it's the first of his kind of sentimental masterpieces where we're expected not just to laugh at the tramp, but to weep for the tramp and weep. For humanity. Then he goes back, he makes some more silent films. And then in 1923, he does a film called A Woman of Paris that does not actually feature, that's just like a serious drama. It's his attempt to break out of the whole little tramp thing. And the audience is like, no, we do not care about anything that's not little tramp. Go back. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200, Charlie Chaplin. And Charlie Chaplin is stung by that. He's one of those guys he's always trying to like break out of or do something more interesting in the mold of his success. But what he found was that he had to do that within the confines of the little tramp. He could not escape from the little tramp. So he's like, okay, I'm just going to make a masterpiece and prove them all wrong and show that I still got it. So he makes The Gold Rush in 1925. Epic comedy inspired by the Klondike Gold Rush. Some famous sequences from that. There's the little potato dance you've probably mm-hmm. seen where he puts toothpicks in potatoes and makes it makes them dance there's also a scene where he's in a cabin and the cabin ends up in an avalanche and he's getting thrown around and it's this virtuoso kind of early special effects stunt sequence more akin to something like what buster keaton would do mm-hmm. in his prime Ooh. but i think that one has a lot of it has some bathos but it's genuinely kind of stirring and who doesn't feel bad for a lonely prospector in the Arctic North? It's like, okay, we can all enter into those hardships. There's nothing political about that exactly. Uh, there's also the scene where he boils and eats his shoe. That's the other famous scene. But while making the gold rush, Chaplin married Lita Gray, who was 16 years old and who he had to quickly marry to uh, whatever the word is, sanctify the union because she was pregnant. This time it wasn't a trick. It was just the exact same scenario minus deceit on the woman's part with a, a woman exactly the same age. And what do you know? Their marriage was unhappy and there was a scandalous divorce with accusations of infidelity and abuse. And Chaplin had to write her a giant check to make her go away. But still, his popularity really doesn't wane. Mm. He's like the kind of guy who's, he's like the first sort of tabloid celebrity that all these things are getting reported about him. And yet, it really just can't put it. People love, love. That is one of the things you have to reckon with is people loved the little tramp. They just, I don't know if they felt seen by the little tramp, like they all related to him or they, mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk about it, but people just love that character. Kaplan was honored with a special trophy around this time at the first Academy Awards, just for acting, writing, directing, and producing The Circus. And The Circus, I've already talked about, is a movie I like a great deal. Chaplin does not consider it 
to be one of his masterpieces. Most of the critical intelligentsia do not either, but it's just a fun movie. Around this time, 1927, the jazz singer hits, not a Chaplin film, but the first major sound film. And sound is introduced. You've all seen Singing in the Rain, so you know how that went and how many silent stars just got chewed up by the system or didn't have the right voices. Harold Lloyd was one of them. Just Harold Lloyd does have sound films, and they're just kind of awkward because he wasn't good with verbal humor, and his voice is kind of weird. But And there's all kinds of famous stars that didn't make it. But Chaplin bridges the gap rather elegantly by just deciding, hey, you know what? I'm so popular that even though there's this demand for talkies, everybody still loves the little tramp. Everybody's going to turn out for the little tramp. I'm going to continue being the little tramp and I'm not going to make the little tramp talk. I'm going to keep essentially doing silent films. And so City Lights hits in 1931. And this is the first of his sort of semi-silent films in that there's still no talking, but there's still intertitles to tell you what the dialogue is. But there is a designed soundscape. There's sound effects. There's music that Chaplin wrote. It's all supposed to be in there, as opposed to an old silent film where you just send it out silently and then somebody plays a piano or there's an orchestra or whatever, depending on the theater you go to. But City Lights was a huge success, grossed over $3 million, Chaplin's favorite of all of his films. Chaplin takes a holiday after that. He met Paulette Godard, who plays the girl in this film that we're talking about. They began a relationship. Chaplin certainly had a type. He, he liked young women. Around this time, he has a conversation with none other than Mahatma Gandhi about the Great Depression and about how technology is taking over. And Gandhi, I guess, is very anti-technology. Chaplin's just more like, ah, oh, we have to adapt to it. But he was inspired by this conversation to hmm. make the film we're talking about today called Modern Times. And the Modern Times is Chaplin saying goodbye to his Tramp character. This is the last Tramp film. He's trying to put, there's a lot of classic Tramp stuff that's put in there. It's kind of a weird film, I guess, for us to start with. But it's just, let me sum up everything that I like to do with this character and uh, tell a sentimental story. Unfortunately, it got out that it was political, that it was, Chaplin wanted to downplay the fact that the film was nakedly political. He had obviously political ideas that went into the film, as we'll talk about, but he didn't want people to be, that makes a movie sound like, it's just not good marketing. It makes a movie sound like homework. So he tried to just sell it as a tramp film, but unfortunately the audience got wise and it was not as successful as his classics like Gold Rush and things like that. Then comes The Great Dictator, which is a sound film. The Tramp does talk. He gives the famous speech that you alluded to about, why can't we all get along or something like that? I, don't know that. <laughs> I haven't, I, maybe I've seen it. It's not a great film, but it was Chaplin cleverly leaning into the fact that people were, hey, have you ever noticed that Charlie Chaplin, like the whole world is like, wow, Hitler looks exactly like Charlie Chaplin and Charlie Chaplin looks exactly like Hitler. And so Chaplin's like, I'm going to... <laughs> make something i'm gonna instead of leaning away lean into it the problem with modern time the problem for him was that modern times combined with the great dictator really linked politics to his image and he has more affairs with very young women some of them underage and there's different paternity suits and things like that and it all begins to catch up with him meanwhile J. Edgar Hoover, the famously obsessive, a uh, man who would hate someone like Chaplin, just mm. like he hated someone like Martin Luther King Jr. And there were people that Hoover would just choose to destroy. And so 
and, and this is all very well documented at this point, the FBI just decided to go after Chaplin. They brought serious charges, including violation of the Mann Act, not you know, don't transport women for immoral purposes, that thing. And uh, Chaplin was acquitted of that one, but he was getting all this bad media attention. The FBI was actively working to destroy and tarnish his reputation. Maybe some of this is exaggerations of sort of Chaplin apologists that want to say he wasn't as bad as all that. I don't think he was a communist subversive like they were saying. He was definitely a left-leaning dude, as you can tell from the movie we just watched. And he was definitely he definitely had a large and unhealthy sexual appetite. I think those are the two bad things that you could tell mm-hmm. and, and an appetite for women under our 21st century age of consent laws at the very least. I think most of what he did was more or less legal, or at least he was able to backfill it into legality by marrying these various women. But mm. again, not great, obviously. Not obviously evil. Mm. Yeah. Chaplin actually did marry happily, though, around this time, the last of his young women, 18-year-old Ona O'Neill, the daughter of Eugene O'Neill, the famous New Deal playwright, leftist playwright dude. And apparently they had a very happy marriage for the rest of Chaplin's life. But in 1946, he made a film, a really lame film called Monsieur Verdot, dark comedy about a bank clerk who marries and murders widows, takes their money. It's another kind of social satire of the way (laughs) things are. And at this point, everybody was fed up with his leftist critiques. We're coming out of World War II, 1947, you know, and people just want to believe in America and not be told how stupid capitalism is and how stupid Hmm. an unjust society, allied society is. Chaplin always denied being a communist. He did get called before the House on American Activities Committee, if people are familiar with that. There's also a fun little trivia piece of trivia that George Orwell secretly accused Chaplin of being a communist, as revealed by declassified British archives. Uh, George Orwell, at a certain point, went before the British government and had a list of communist subversives. He threw a bunch of people under the bus, and Charlie (laughs) Chaplin was the most famous of them. So, (laughs) George Orwell, you insert your own joke there, I guess. So around this time, Chaplin's U.S. reentry permit, like he leaves for Europe and then his reentry permit is revoked. This is in the late 1940s. Chaplin, most people think, could have fought it and won because they didn't actually have anything substantial against him. But he chose to forego the publicity. Plus, he just got mad at America. Plus, he had a lot of land and holdings and property and money tied up in the American system. And he didn't Mm -hmm. want to start a battle that would end with the government going after any of that stuff. So he just chose to live out the rest of his life basically in Europe. And he was an expatriate for 20 years, if you can call a person born in Britain an expatriate. During those 20 years, he focused on re-editing and re-releasing many of his old films, getting their distribution rights. And he was a good curator of his brand and of the Mm. Little Tramp character. And like, for example, if you buy the Criterion edition of The Gold Rush from 1925, it has The Gold Rush as it was released in 1925, and then it has the edited, scored, sort of George Lucasian special edition Chaplin version from the 1950s or something like that, with narration by Charlie Chaplin. And 
people have their arguments over which one's best. Obviously, the original is probably the best, but huh. it's kind of fun to see it with Chaplin's own ideas of what the narration and the sound effects and the the music should be. But he kept his brand alive, and it's one of the reasons. Some of the reasons that we remember certain people and certain things are accidents of history. There, there may be other people. Well, Her- Harold Lloyd is a great example. Harold Lloyd preserved his films, but he just kept them out of circulation for 20 years. And so Ben hadn't seen a Harold Lloyd film, whereas he knew exactly who Charlie Chaplin was. Buster Keaton almost had his entire... Buster Keaton could have very easily just been lost to history. We've been able to preserve some things. It wasn't too late when he began to get some reassessment and some acclaim, but it would have, if it had gone a few more years, his film negatives could have just disappeared and we just couldn't, might not have things like the general or Mm. some of these things. Film preservation wasn't a thing for most of the early 20th century. Just people weren't thinking about it. The chaplain kept the rights, had the money, had the clout and had the foresight to keep his character alive in the public consciousness, keep releasing these films. And they kept being profitable. People still liked the little tramp into the fifties and sixties. And Chaplin was awarded in 1972 an honorary Academy Award. He returned to the United States after two decades. I think at this point, whoever was in charge was just like, I don't think Charlie Chaplin's going to be too much of a threat to our national security state. So maybe he can come get his Academy Award. And so he, you can find the footage on YouTube of him receiving like a 12-minute standing ovation at this is where, at the Academy Awards, this is where Buster Keaton fans really feel sour grapes because they're like, Chaplin got to live to see all his stuff reacclaimed and he got to bask in the love of everyone mm. in the last years of his life, whereas Keaton, not as much. And many people think Keaton was the superior artist. But be that as it may, that's basically Charlie Chaplin's life. In 1975, he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II, a woman who had her hands on every aspect of 20th century history. Um, yeah, lived another couple of years, and then he died. That's the story of Charlie Chaplin. Well, all right. Which brings us to our point of view on this film. Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. Fantastic point of view. Good as a point of view, anyway. So, Ben, what did you think about Modern Times, your first Charlie Chaplin movie besides City Lights? Oh. 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 <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I should see it again sometime or what, but it's scene by scene. The directing is pretty awesome. Like visually, like Chaplin really knows what he's doing with film. The way that he frames and designs the sets. The set design in this movie is some of the coolest I've probably ever seen. Yeah, it's all this kind of, what would you say, like art deco? Art deco machinery and stuff, gears and cogs and pistons. Probably most people have seen the famous image of, or if you're a film fan at all, you've Mm -hmm. seen the image of him getting sucked into the gears. and Uh Down in the guts of the machine with Mm -hmm. the wrench. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. So it's beautiful on that level. I wouldn't say I found it enjoyable overall, even though there's any number of scenes that I think were fun. Mm-hmm. Gags are great. I like watching Chaplin work and do his thing. But on the other hand, you said earlier, there's some kind of edge to The Little Tramp. And this movie, to me, had an, it had two things. One is that sense of an edge, mm-hmm. which I'm still trying to find words for. 
And the other is, the other actually, <laughs> it's almost a Tom Cruise feeling of here's this older guy playing, playing the little tramp. Mm-hmm. And this is his hot young thing. Yeah. And it's and she's out there and she's like a supermodel cosplaying yes. street girl. <laughs> she feels very weirdly modern the way she, that she's maybe it's, maybe it's right. just that because of this the character has to have very simple makeup and stuff like that, but she feels remarkably modern. She feels modern and she feels very sexualized. She mm-hmm. felt very like, Hey, I'm a sex object and that's how Chaplin sees me and that's what I want to be. Yep. And the age difference between us is very marked. And I'm his fantasy girl. And here I am in his movie as one of his fantasies. And that's how, so all of it felt, all of it, all the scenes with her felt that way to me. Did you know the context that I just gave about I uh, don't, his various underage relationships? I don't, I'm not sure that I did. Or if I did, I didn't remember it. I wasn't conscious, but it was. Uh, the movie does have that feeling. It does have that feeling. I'm sure I knew something, but. It just looked that way. Right. He's the tramp does look grubby, mm-hmm. but she looks fake grubby. She really does look like a model who's faking being a street urchin. And she, there's just something about the way that she's filmed and the way that she's performing, which is like flirtatious and in a way that's it just put me off. It's it is like a Tom Cruise. I'm going to be 60 year old Tom Cruise, but I'm going to have the hot young thing in my mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, um, it is remarkably. It's weird for that era. We've watched we watched a Keaton and we watched a Lloyd. I guess in the Keaton, the girls kind of in Steamboat Blue Junior. She's kind of a flapper. She's like a 1920s type. Yeah. In Lloyd, she's more of a 1820s type or something. Uh-huh. She's she's like the virginal girl at home waiting for the boy to make good. Very, very old fashioned view of of womanhood, and that's what I'm used to in movies of this era even other mm-hmm. chaplin movies it's yeah a very sort of victorian ideal of you that's know right. the little woman beset by problems and that's what i kind of expected not having seen this movie for however many years maybe decades but yeah this girl does feel very modern and very frank in her sexuality and very bold in a way that is unusual for the era i think yeah it wasn't that way in city lights which i've seen yeah, City Lights is more of the Victorian kind more, of. You, much you, could, more. you could imagine Dickens writing this, like, mm-hmm. you know. And even if the character is like a prostitute or a prostitute type surrogate, oftentimes in those old movies, it'll, it will feel just Victorian somehow. Or, yeah, or, it feels chaste actually yeah. in its way. But this movie didn't feel that way at all. It felt like on the vert. If actually, I almost want to say that anytime the girl was on screen, it felt somehow inappropriate. Mm-hmm. I don't know. In the scenarios in which they were together, like him putting her to bed in an apartment store bed where he works as a security guard, I just, I felt pretty uncomfortable with it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like it told me too much about Chaplin and about, I didn't assume that they had a relationship. Right. But I assumed that... Chaplin cast her to be a certain thing. That's and, right, yeah. to him, yeah. Uh, and so I just, I didn't enjoy their... That really undercut the movie for me. Yes, I would say so. I would say that's true. I agree with everything. As far as the edge goes, I don't know. Chaplin often gets accused of self-pity, and I think that is true. I'm trying to think of a modern actor to compare it to. He wants you to feel bad for the tramp in a way that doesn't quite track with reality. It's Yes, times are hard, 
and fate is seems to be stacked against this guy. But also he sucks. Like he loses most of these jobs. I know. I know. I'm bringing more logic to it than the movie wants me to. But it's like he's a bumbling idiot. He's not good at a lot of stuff, and, mm-hmm. and that's actually why one of the reasons why he can't get ahead in life. And yet the movie just wants you to wants to say, "Ah, oh, the deck is so stacked against this poor guy." And it is especially off putting when he's kind to the girl. Mm-hmm. It's like you can see in a movie that I'm sure we've seen a thousand movies where a guy is kind to a girl or to a downtrodden person. And we're like, yay, what a hero. But in this case there, for whatever reason, it just does feel like, Oh, he wrote himself to be a hero. He actually wrote himself to be more of a hero than he actually would be more Uh of a hero than this character feels like he would be. It's like, I don't actually buy that. This guy is this nice and this noble. This feels like an idealized self conception. That's that is off putting. Well, and, I don't know that he's nice to anyone else in the whole movie. Right. Except by accident. Right. He just seems kind of... And I know that this movie is a satire. It's a satire of... And it, it, it gets it definitely gets some things right. If you're just thinking in terms of, does this movie accurately represent things, certain things through visual comedy or through melodrama that are bad about the modern world? Yep. Yeah. 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 I don't disagree with a lot of the points he's making, so to speak. But how, uh, whether or not he's doing it well dramatically is another question. Mm-hmm. So he can make a satirical point about being a factory worker and being driven insane by the being on, a, on an assembly line and treated like part of the machine yourself. And I know that that was true. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that it is still true in a lot of parts of the world and in various places, even in America, where you can work. Yeah. And you are just that. You're going to be worked, worked, worked. And it's insane and bad. I don't, I'm in full sympathy with making a movie that makes that part of the comedy. There's exactly one job that I've quit in my entire life. I'm sure I've quit lots, but there's exactly one job that I've gotten four days into and said, no, I'm sorry. I'd rather be up against financial ruin yeah. than work here. And it was a factory job and it was just hard and dehumanizing Yeah, in a way that I hated. Yep. Yeah. So I don't fault him at all for any of those gags or sat or satirizations but oh i forget where i was gonna go there's just, there is just something that like you said about his character that i i don't feel sympathetic to his character being the point man for that comedy yeah maybe we can draw this out is i think we're both we both are talking about the same thing but it is hard to put into words maybe we can draw this out by comparing him to keaton or even lloyd because yeah these guys all exist in a world with these burly authority figures With like old white men that run everything and Uh don't care or are buffoons. And then Uh these burly kind of big dudes that are bullies. Like that's just the foundation of all silent comedy is (laughs) wherever you go, there's going to be, whether he's a police officer or a rival for your beloved or Mm -hmm. a a construction worker or an army sergeant or a fellow prisoner, whatever, there's just always going to be a big burly guy that's out to get you. It's just like silent comedy 101. And so that happens to Keaton. That happens to Harold Lloyd. But I don't feel bad about the way that they set up their... And and, and they can both be ingenious in getting the better of their tormentors or of making life. Uh-huh. They, they can all three be kind of callous and I'm going to cause disaster for these side these silly side characters so that I can get what I want. 
But you don't feel bad about it with the other two. And especially with Keaton, you don't feel bad about it. No. I think some of it is just Keaton's performance. Keaton never seems to be asking you to feel bad for him. He's, no. He is the great stone face. Yep. And so it's just like he's ruggedly determined and he's trying to get what he wants and you're with him. Mm-hmm. But he's never acting. And you feel bad for him when the plot doesn't go his way or he doesn't get the girl or his dad and Steamboat Bill Jr. is mean to him or whatever. But it never seems like Buster Keaton as an actor is begging for your sympathy. It feels like he's just doing the next right thing, trudging on, trying his best. Um, and so even though the scenario is designed to elicit your sympathy, he's not trying to elicit your sympathy in the moment. Yeah, that is hard to put into words. What's, yeah, he, it, what's he doing differently? He's, yeah, there's something just more, there's something more straightforward and less precious about Keaton. He's, it's no le- certainly no less of a performance or right. a persona than what Chaplin has. But it's a different kind. And Chaplin, it's like Chaplin once is more actively asking you to buy into the little tramp as a brand. Yeah. And it's a more sentimental brand. And it's, it's a more sort of puppy dog brand or something. Yeah. I mean, you know, the kind of brand that makes you want to say, aww, aww. It's, it, but, I, what, but, yeah, go ahead. Well, what I almost want to say, and I know this doesn't quite work, but what I almost want to say is that, especially with Keaton, but also with Lloyd, the joke is on them. Yeah. As much as anything. Like, they're silly. That's true. With Chaplin, I know he's, like, getting bonked on the head, and the paradigm doesn't quite work because he is the butt of the joke a lot of the times. Like he takes pratfalls and things, mm-hmm. do- and he's stupid and stuff. Right. But you never quite feel, actually, like the joke's on him. You always feel like he's above everyone else. Like, he as a director is positioning he as a character as, as being better somehow. Yeah, I know what you're trying to say. Yeah. Uh, it is hard. Man, it's hard to say. I feel like if we could say it, it would be pretty simple. Yes, I'm sure. Because <laughs> the difference, whatever the difference is, is simple. I think if you watch these movies, if you watch a movie by each guy, mm-hmm. I'm going to guess that most like, people would just feel, oh, that's quite different. Right. But the words are hard. Yeah, Keaton and Lloyd are both, they are going to triumph. Mm-hmm. Over their circumstances, eventually, maybe even with some heroism, but they are, they are funny. They are ridiculous. They are silly. Mm. And maybe even the way that they triumph will be quite silly. Right. They're heroes. If they're heroes, then they are in spite of themselves and their own weaknesses. If and you compare the ending to the three movies, so the ending of Safety Last, Harold Lloyd, through pluck, determination, and a lot of good luck, makes it to the top of the building. His girl's there to get him. He gets bonked on the head and almost topples off the building. And then they hug and he walks off and he walks through some tar and he's, his shoes stick and he walks away barefoot. And it's just like a last little, well, isn't this guy ridiculous kind of thing. Bester Keaton, Phil, Steamboat Bill Jr. has this ridiculous, I don't even get what the joke is or remember, but like he's jumping into the water and they all think he's doing one thing, but then he's actually saving a horse or something. I don't remember exactly, but <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. he's, he's, he looks silly at the end. Chaplin goes for this sort of existential, like he gives the girl a speech about how they just have to soldier on and they walk into the sunset into or the sunset the, or into the sunrise toward the mountain more likely. Or something. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's more like Chaplin wants, wants to represent you. Mm-hmm. Chaplin wants, he wants you to think you are the little tramp. You're the underdog. Life is hard. You, I don't know if I would say that he thinks you deserve better. 
But in some sense, he thinks you deserve better. Right. I don't know. Uh, so I don't remember City Lights having so much this quality. I know Modern Times is more satirical, more political. Mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to remember. But there was definite sentimentality to City Lights that I didn't enjoy at the time. Right. And I, I'm so I'm trying to bring, I'm trying to think about that angle on it too. It's more sentimental than Keaton or Lloyd. Yeah. Who are uh, happy to be the objects of comedy and the butt of the jokes and then in the movie. Whereas with the with the little tramp, it's more like he does want to be some kind of heroic figure. Yeah. He wants to be like every the everyman's hero. And Buster Keaton doesn't want to be, I don't think. Or that's not how his character really works. It is still so hard to put into words because it's not like in in the case of both Lloyd and Keaton, the films we've watched and other films, they do both embody a kind of hero's journey. Like uh-huh. they have to man up, mm-hmm. beat the problem. Lloyd actually can be a little bit more sentimental in some of his films, but in Safety Last, it really is just, there's nothing intrinsically heroic about this guy or anything. He just mm-hmm. gets stuck in a situation where for whatever silly plot reason, he has to climb a building and then he does his best, all kinds of crazy stunts happen. And there's just, there's not a lot that's substantive about the movie one way or another. And that's wonderful. It's just a rip roaring adventure film in its way. Right. Keaton does, is an everyman hero in the general and in Steamboat Bill Jr. Mm -hmm. He is like a dude that has to step up and have an inner quality somehow. (laughs) And yet it is different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's quite different. Some of it's probably that Chaplin starts Modern Times as a clear representative of the factory worker who's a victim. Right. A victim of the modern industrial machine, dehumanized and going crazy because of it. But Buster Keaton starts Steamboat Bill Jr. as just a fop. A, a fop. <laughs> a really silly guy who doesn't know how to be a man. You know what? I think maybe you just put your finger on it. Victim is the right word. Chaplin is the victim of everyone else. Keaton is the victim of himself, and then he (laughs) deals with himself. And I think Lloyd, in his less profound way, is actually the victim of himself and then deals with himself. Like They're both actually fools at the beginning of the movie that have to become men, which is a really classic storytelling Mm -hmm. structure. Whereas Chaplin, he's always awesome, I guess. He's always like the hero and the victim but you know things are just stacked against him and he can't right he's more like the archetype of oh i've lost the words but it's the something fool or the fool something it's the wise fool right it's the fool who's wiser than you are right that's what that's kind of what he is yeah he's the yeah the something jester the yeah i know Oh goodness (laughs) (laughs) there's no words today listener i'm looking up the archetype of the fool right now yes so but yeah, I think that's good. That's a, that's, Stab that's at a good handle. Least. Yeah. Yeah. Like the tramp does not have to learn or grow or change in this film. He does not have to overcome anything in it himself. He always deserves success and the universe is always stacked against him. And we're supposed to feel pity for him for that reason, mm-hmm. which is a lot less compelling to my mind than both Keaton and Lloyd having the situation stacked against them because of their own inadequacies, which they then overcome. That's just Joseph Campbell or whatever. Yeah. Did you find the name? I mean, just the fool or the wise fool. The holy fool, Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess. Something like that. 
the court jester. It is then interesting to speculate, given how this strikes us, and how I think it actually strikes a lot of people, both Christian and pagan, because I think a lot of people actually don't like Chaplin for whether they articulate it the way we're <laughs> attempting to or not. Mm-hmm. They kind of feel the same way. Meredith, I asked her if she wanted to watch a Chaplin movie yesterday just so I could get another one in to jog my memory. And she's like, no, I don't like that guy. And I was like, have you ever seen anything with him? And she's like, no, I just don't. I'm sorry. I No, I don't want to watch a Charlie Chaplin film. Huh. I was like, why not? And she's like, I have no idea. I just know he's off-putting to me. And she loves Keaton. She's she like I showed her a Keaton movie, and then we ended up watching five more. And it wasn't because I was being Mister you know, <laughs> Husband that controls the remote and makes his poor suffering wife watch these things. It's because she genuinely just wanted to watch more Buster. Like Nathan, can we watch another Buster Keaton movie? I think we watched four or five of them. And Keaton's just that way. Yeah, Keaton's awesome, but she just won't even touch. Like Charlie Chaplin is toxic to her, and I think it is her just picking up on this quality, <laughs> whatever it is, this yeah. self-pity, this sort of mean-spiritedness, I want to say, almost. Would you say that's, you mentioned the circus is one that you liked maybe the most. Would you say that's the same there? I think it actually is the same, but it actually, it's one of those things where it almost doesn't matter in that case, because there's not as much as of the commensurate self-pity. It's like, this guy's just a jerk. And in a sort of Bugs Bunny way, okay. you just participate in him getting the better of everyone else. And it, it's a good sort of schadenfreude comedy, okay. right? which which can work. Everybody loves the Marx Brothers. And there are many, many comedians that exist just to show up, puncture something, be mean, say the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Bill Murray, I guess, is a classic modern example. Like, he's just saying the things that we all think, you know, that sort of thing. Right. That can work well, and people, and you won't necessarily find yourself off-put by it when it states its intentions and isn't sentimental about it. When it's just like, hey, I'm a, de- I'm a destructive force, and you either agree with what I'm destroying or you don't. But you know, in the Marx Brothers cases, they're like, opera, it's dumb. <laughs> spend 90 minutes <laughs> destroying opera. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> we're all on board with that. <laughs> stuffy society people they're stuffy <laughs> let's destroy them like, <laughs> we can all enjoy that i think we all have that mechanism in us but with Chaplin, i don't know somehow it always feels like he wants you to pity him like it's not quite fair what he's doing to some of the other characters an example there's a boss character in the later stages of this movie who gets sucked into the machine and Chaplin's feeding him his lunch or something like that while he's stuck in the cogs of this machine. And it's not like a super off-putting scene or anything. It's kind of funny. But it does just illustrate this kind of, well, here's a character that's essentially innocent, not really a bad dude within the confines of the story, and yet he's really getting tormented by what the little tramp is doing and all the mistakes that he's making. And there's something kind of, there's a number of moments in the movie where it's either funny in an intentionally mean-spirited way, like you're just laughing, Oh man, he really callously destroyed those people. It's not, we're not talking like Guardians of the Galaxy level othering here, no, but, no, but there no. is just a little whiff of the scene where he walks onto it because he gets a job working for construction and he manages to pull the wrong wedge out and destroy a boat. There, there's just a sense of, well, he descended on this scene, he caused chaos, he destroyed millions of dollars of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying. Yeah, there's just, Something a little mean-spirited about it. 
which again can I think of the circus actually works rather well, and I think in the right context can work well for comedy does need an edge to it. Generally, it helps for it to be going after something, but you're never quite sure about the target whether you agree with the targets a lot of the time in this one. Well, what do you think is the cause of his massive popularity? Obviously, he's a brilliant performer. Right, he's awesome at pantomimes. Pantomiming, he's he is on his own terms. He's quite funny. Mm-hmm. But modern times is near the end of his popular output, and a lot of people didn't like it because it was so political. Right. And so, let's go back to something like City Lights, which was massively popular, right. or even The Gold Rush. Which we should do sometime. It's a great movie. I'd love to do The Gold Rush. I'd love to see a Chaplin movie that I was like, yay, this movie's great. Yeah, The Gold Rush might be the best shot at that. We should probably do that one sometime. Okay. I mean, he is... I don't know. It's interesting. I guess he must capture something like that kind of plucky outsider yeah. sort of thing that we understand in the 1930s why everybody would resonate with this character. But then Modern Times wasn't his most popular film. But in the 1920s, it is interesting to contemplate. You have a relatively well-to-do America with plenty of haves and not that many have-nots, at least in the popular conception that's been handed down to us. Huh. And yet people love this kind of outsider, almost immigrant, hobo-type character. They just love it. He's internationally famous. People the world over, it's the, he's not even an American phenomenon. He's just a worldwide it's like Mickey Mouse or something like mm-hmm. that. Like people just, everyone can relate to the tramp at the time. But you and I watch it now and it's like, well, you relate to Keaton a lot better. And I think actually a lot of people would say the same thing. That's interesting. Um, so I'm not sure what he was plugged into about the zeitgeist that was just so profoundly hilarious and moving to people. <laughs> Maybe this would be a better podcast if I had a better answer to that. But it sounds like we just need to do another Chaplin movie. I just, I feel pretty interested in this guy getting a little more of a grip on what he represented to people. If you watch his early shorts, and you do see it in this movie, there are brilliant comic sequences. I mean, just in terms of, there's an early sequence here where he's he kind of goes mad just from, he has a nervous breakdown from the repetitious motions that he's had to make on the assembly line, and he just goes through and starts using his wrenches to destroy the whole factory and pull buttons off of people's coats. And I'm not making it sound that funny, but it is, it is brilliant. It's brilliant. Pantomime It's brilliant. Physical comedy. It's, it's kind of edgy. Actually. It is edgy. Um, yeah, It feels very aggressive and very, and then there's a couple of women who they have buttons on their coats. Strategically bit, placed buttons. Yeah. Let's say strategically placed buttons that look just like the bolts. And, oh, he's going after these women with his wrenches. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Is this a metaphor for something? <laughs> what would be the most hilarious place on a woman uh, to put buttons? I mean, enough so that I'm like, if I had a teenage son, I would not show him this scene. <laughs> right. I just, we just couldn't. It's like everyone understands what this means. Right. It's, just, it's pretty aggressive. Yeah. Uh, but for what it is, taken on its own terms, yeah. I mean, it is yeah. brilliant. Just. And there's like an ice skating scene, or not ice skating, a roller, a, skating, a, a roller scene. skating scene where he keeps almost going over an edge. And he is a, an absolutely brilliant uh, physical performer. He is the kind of guy that can just, he doesn't need anything. Harold Lloyd would build these elaborate plots that could get him to a building that he had to climb up. But Chaplin really is the kind of guy where he can make a brilliant little comedy movie out of, you know, a guy, a girl in the park with a mean policeman or something like mm-hmm. that and a bench. 
Like he, he is supremely talented. So I imagine that that's some of it. And he was innovative. You mm-hmm. know, there's so many things that we just have come down to us through Mickey Mouse or Looney Tunes or whatever. And so we're, we just take them for granted. But yeah, these guys were figuring out how to be funny on the screen. And Chaplin was the first to crack a lot of this stuff. So, yeah, maybe we'll have to do some shorts. Maybe we'll have to do the gold rush. Yeah, it'd be interesting to do more. What other thoughts do you have about this film? It's kind of a series of set pieces Mm -hmm. with this light interconnected plot with this girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I guess the only the final thing to say is that I don't end. We've already you maybe you've said this, but I don't I didn't end the movie feeling sympathy for the tramp Mm -hmm. and the girl. I just felt like tramp, you're a destructive force of nature <laughs> who can't be trusted on a job site to do the basic requirements of the job it's only your fault right that you are where you are i don't fault you for having a nervous breakdown at the factory not at all i don't think you should go back there but other than that i uh, i just felt like you wanted me to see you as the emblem of the people pe- at the time right. contemporary people at the time struggling to make it through and being unfairly treated everywhere they went and I, th- I think well it's true that there's a lot of circumstances that made life hard for people at the time and you captured some of those but at the same time your core your character <laughs> like as in your integrity is also holding you back yeah like n- nobody would actually want to hire you you would lose these jobs that's right i think the movie's most effective when it has he, he's just trying to do the right thing there are moments where he's trying to do the right thing and mm-hmm. then it blow it just circumstances conspire That's against right. him yeah, there's a moment where a flag falls off of it it is, <laughs> it is funny a flag it falls off funny. of a truck he grabs the flag and waves it to try and catch up with the truck just to be nice and then a mob forms behind him like a union strike or something yeah and suddenly the police show up and it looks like he's the ringleader for the this entire striking mob. But <laughs> so that kind of thing works. But there again, that sort of thing also doesn't feel that universal. It just feels like, wow, this guy has some spectacularly bad luck. There's relatively few moments where it's like, well, he did a really good job. And yet society really is set up not to help a person like that. Right. Like that's what you want. And maybe the closest the movie comes is in the end when he and the girl have made a success at a certain job and then basically child protective services just shows up to get his girlfriend. Oh man, it feels a little too autobiographical. Yeah, but then it feels too <laughs> autobiographical. <laughs> I can imagine Keaton telling the same story and I think what Keaton would do and he and Keaton would successfully actually make you cry maybe like Keaton wasn't above going for the heartstrings. He just always made it look like he wasn't he was clever enough to mm-hmm. sort of conceal his more rank attempts at tugging your heartstrings what keaton would do is for some of the movie the guy would be a deserved buffoon who who were not so were supposed to think deserved that job like he deserved to be fired but then he would step up he would do a good job and that's when somehow circumstances would just be stacked against him and then we'd really feel sorry for him and want to watch him soldier on Mm -hmm. but like you said i'm not hiring the little tramp i would always hire buster keaton at the end of a buster keaton movie because he's always become kind of an uber competent Uh like jackie chan type Uh character that can do everything (laughs) but why would anyone ever 
<laughs> the little tramp, like the little tramp sucks. He feels sorry for himself and he he has a kind of a mean-spirited edge. Like he doesn't actually care about people or care about doing his job. When he gets his big break as a security guard, he immediately invites the girl in and they start just abusing the thing immediately. Like yeah. they immediately just take advantage of the fact that he's in a mall and so they can just go nuts and skate around and eat food and yep. And you're supposed to be with them in that, but I'm not. I'm like, no. dude, you got a chance. Take this seriously. And I know that's like more logic than Chaplin wants you to bring to the movie, but he wants your heartstrings, which means he's trying for that logic. So I think it's fair to ding him when it doesn't work. Yep. What was your favorite joke or gag? Or let's let's leave on a positive note here. All right, favorite. Let's see. Oh, what would that be? So I'm thinking through all the sequences. You've got the factory. You've got uh, some stuff in the prison was pretty fun. Although the fact that, oh my goodness, there's a scene where he fights off several convicts who are trying to make a prison escape Mm -hmm. and basically beats them all up. But the fact that he's doing it on cocaine, (laughs) and this is really part of the movie. This That again, I did not expect him to be to have a scene where part of the comedy was that he was accidentally on drugs and <laughs> therefore and, able to <laughs> therefore able to take on several larger men. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to say. That scene was really fun physical comedy. It was also I was just trying to process what the satire was here <laughs> exactly. And I guess I guess that's about my favorite. There, there is something incredibly graceful kind of you really see the sort of proto jackie chan kind of thing where he's Mm -hmm. just using a prison door basically to hit all these guys in the head and kind of jumping around and stuff and it's fun that was probably my favorite sequence as well there's a lot of there's a lot of great stuff you'll definitely see one of the 20th century's great pantomime artists do his thing and you will if you have any sympathy for that as an art form you will see something a person who is good at it and you can appreciate that i guess Mm. if you want ben how many wrenches wrenches out of 40 do you want to throw into the gears of this film no i'll give it 30 i'll give it 30 as well yeah, swap out that girl with somebody more likable and the movie would probably go up <laughs> quite a bit, I would say. Yeah, could be. She is weird. It is weird how modern she feels. Like, you really feel like you're suddenly watching, like, just a black and white movie of a modern actress doing modern things. And not a very good modern actress, but mm-hmm. she looks a lot like Jodie Foster, too. Really? I, was, I thought she did early on when she's, when she's smiling a lot in some of her worst oh, acting moments when I she see. has her little waif sisters right we never did figure out why her dad gets shot yeah i don't know what happened there maybe the plot summary on wikipedia will tell me that sounds good i'm not sure modern times nope (laughs) tells me nothing holy fool was the archetype we were looking for thank you holy fool holy fool was an individual who outwardly behaved in an eccentric manner by the commonly accepted standards of a society Inwardly, he pursued a religious ideal or was enlivened by mystical experience. Who would be a famous holy fool from a movie? From a movie? Or from a book. If anyone's ever seen the Peter Sellers movie, Being There, that's the very definition of a holy fool. He's like this guy who's Mm -hmm. borderline mentally 
I've seen that retarded and everyone keys off and he's a very, he's a simpleton and therefore everyone in the movie sort of keys off of him and thinks that profound things are happening and feels like their lives are changing. And at the end of the movie, he literally walks on water. It's like political satire through religious allegory. It is a bizarre and unpleasant movie. It is a both bizarre and unpleasant movie. I do not recommend it. No way. Although I think it was a big hit back in the day. Weird. Uh, yeah. Who's a holy fool? Oh, well. Huh. Yep. I'm pulling nothing. Yeah. I tried Googling. Holy fool in movies. Melissa McCarthy and Bridesmaids. Never seen it. Never will. Okay. Yeah. I'll give it 29 wrenches. And that's all I have to say on the matter. That's all Ben has to say on the matter, I'm guessing. That's all. Go to patreon.com forward slash sanity the movies. Until next time. And has to think of a line from this silent film. Uh, you there, get back to work. <laughs> <laughs>